you know, you have this internal debate because it's a moment, right? It's an important moment. Do I share it with him? Is he old enough to understand what this is? Yeah. Is he old enough to understand what this is? Is he old enough to digest it? But at the same time, I also don't want him worried about me going out on a run and being afraid for whether I'm coming back or not because he's young and he's sensitive and he's impressionable. I'm Kamatwa Kabawizi, a creative and strategist, and I've got a 13-year-old son that you'll get to know as the H. Word. My name is Kamau Ware. I'm an artist slash historian, CEO of Kamau Studios, founder of Black Gotham Experience, and father of a son you'll get to know as Spades, who is 22 years old. What's good, people? I'm Adrian Ali Franks, better known as AD, creative, designer, father of a young guy by the name of Garvey. He is now... 19 months. And this is The Stages, where three Black fathers at various stages of parenthood discuss our health journeys, physical, mental, and professional, and how fatherhood inspires our connected paths. We all carry a lot on our shoulders as a part of the human experience, and often you need a friend to carry that weight with you. That's why it's so important that you sincerely check in with your people on a regular basis. Kamau, Adrian, and I do this every episode with a segment called The Way In. Good brothers. How's your week been? How's everything? I'm here, man. You know, it's like, as I tell people, the ideal of Carpe Diem, seize the day, can't be no more realer than right now, right? Like, you literally got to just take everything day by day. And you just got to win the day. If you win the day, that's what it is. Nothing else matters. Some people, they're not winning the day, bro. Or this day could be their last. That's how I look at it, man. Like, I'm good. I'm just winning the day every day, day by day. That's it. Yeah, I would say that this might be perhaps my first great week in isolation through meditation. I definitely have accepted that this is a time where being okay is completely okay. And if you have a good day, that's great. If you have a great day, that's amazing. And today was a great day. I had a pretty solid week, but it came on the back end of like one of my more stressful days. Friday was pretty rough. And then I kind of like unplugged for the weekend. And then like Monday just hit a stride. So I'm not mad at this week, except for some of the other craziness that happens in the world around us. Just speaking about that and the world that we're in right now, you know, again, just you being in this moment, being in this situation of coronavirus lockdown, working from home, living from home, parenting from home and from a distance. It's a lot. And it's been weighing on me a bit this week and especially last week. So I think it's a good way to get into the weigh in, the weight of this situation that we're in right now, where I think we're probably, what, eight weeks in, maybe more into this lockdown, which has been, I think, been good in some ways for the world, for the environment, for the way that we check in with each other, for ideas like this that come out of that reflective time. But it's also a moment that can fray at the edges. And you know, as you both know, I've had a couple of family losses in the past couple of weeks. And Having that happen in my life with all the like complex family issues that have been just going on in the backdrop and the reconnection with distant family, reconnection with 
a world that used to be so close and feels so separate, not just in the way that sometimes familial relationships break apart, but also in that my family's kind of split. You know, I've got my dad's side, my mom's side, and then we're just all over the place. We're all over the United States. We're probably in like nine different states. A cousin right now is in Tanzania. My brother was living in Brazil. It's just everywhere. But one of the things that was actually like a beautiful moment when I had a chance to like sit back and reflect on it was we had a service for my grandmother who passed. She passed away on her 99th birthday in the morning. You know, she was living with dementia for a long time, probably a decade, and wasn't really with us, you know, in that same way. She was, you know, physically ever not with us in the same way. But what was somewhat beautiful about this kind of virtual service was that people could actually be there that would not have been able to be there potentially if it were a live funeral or a live service. And sitting back and looking at all these faces on Zoom, 90-something people tapped in from all over the world to celebrate this woman's life, someone who was like a rock in the family and someone who was truly beloved and gave a whole lot of love. Like It was kind of special to see that. It lifted me up a bit because I'd been really down, not really being able to just hug anybody or just sit around a table and reflect the way that we normally do when it comes to loss and was feeling that from my stepmother's passing the week before, not being able to be with my dad, not being able to be with my brother and sister in that moment. But even more so when you like have those compound losses, but there are those bright spots and, and that chance to see the family and see these faces, but also as black people do celebrate a life and find a little bit of joy in it, like seeing octogenarians, 70, 80-year-old people, you know, in the fam logging in on their phones over Zoom. That was actually pretty refreshing. And it brought a little bit of a smile to my face that like by hook or by crook, they're going to figure it out, right? We're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate that life regardless. And so it did kind of like give a little bit of upliftment at the beginning of this week given where we've been and given the situation that we're sitting in right now. So there's little silver linings everywhere, but this also is a week that's had some wild ups and downs. So I want to know how that's been for you guys as well. Well, hey, just, you know, of course, man, just our heart goes out to you and the fam with respect to the lossing of a powerful matriarch. And, you know, grandma put up some numbers, man, 99. Those are some years, man. So I think that like within like about eight or nine days, you lost two people. So, you know, my heart definitely continues to go out to you and the family and we were just talking about funerals like just a couple of weeks ago on our first recording and i appreciate you for taking the leadership and pulling together these conversations because just these touch points are important for us just to have in our own catharsis and our own process of healing but also just as a heartbeat for each other ad how's things been in your world fatherhood art making i've seen you taking real good advantage of your balcony and you're creating your own studio space. So, I mean, I, I see you've been dealing with this situation in a number of different artful, creative ways and finding ways to really, like you said, like win the day. So what's that process been like for you? It's funny, man, because, you know, I often say like my old studio in Red Hook was like the Batcave, right? And I've now I have moved the Batcave like 
I guess you can say this is the third iteration of it here in New York. So yeah, it's weird because now the bat cave is now my office and it's not even a cave. It's like a bat roof. So yeah, man, it's like this idea that I have to kind of like get creative time in where I can get it between, you know, WebEx meetings, just getting up in the morning, making coffee, dealing with a baby, being a husband. I just try to get in these creative lunch times, right? And whatever I can, I just try to condense all these ideas on my head and just get it out. If the weather's nice, go right on the rooftop slash patio and just try to get something down, man. Even if it's like me just taking pictures on myself or taking pictures in general or now throwing some paints in the middle of it now, like it's been helping, right? Because I haven't got a chance to paint in quite some time, but I've been creative in other types of uh, avenues and other mediums, but getting back to painting was kind of fun. So yeah, and just been trying to get these creative lunches in with myself, right? And doing them on IG, because I know everybody now is literally on a screen, either tuned in to something live or some kind of video recording. And yeah, man, I think that was kind of cool, man. When it kind of ends, I go back to my WebEx meetings and try to get to the finish line at the end of the day by putting garbage to sleep and maybe drinking some gin or some whiskey. <laughs> no doubt. Watching some Apple Plus or some Netflix or just talking shit with Nicole or not, or just going to sleep early, whatever, right? So yeah, that's been the process here lately, man. But I've been highly productive, though. I've been getting a lot of stuff done because shit, I'm at the house. Might as well just get it done, right? Is it safe to say you're going from being Bruce Wayne and Tony Starks? I definitely would say Tony Starks, 100%. Because, <laughs> I mean, Batman was in the Bat Cave. He had like a double life. I feel like motherfuckers know you Iron Man and you at home. And so I feel like when you out there on the deck painting and then going back to your computer and you got Miss Potts and your baby. So you more like an Iron Man phase. I think you kind of got the Avengers establishment looking over Brooklyn. I think you're right, man. It's funny you say that because I was just talking to my boy Quentin and even Nicole. Like, yo, at some point, I'm going to have to learn how to design with a robot, some type of artificial intelligence. It's, it's here. So it's, we're in the Jetson era all of a sudden, man. Like COVID-19 has literally pushed us into the Jetson era. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's more Tony Stark's now. So you've had a crossover, man. You've gone from the DC universe to the Marvel universe. <laughs> hey, man, that's... Congratulations. <laughs> hey, that's life now, right? Nothing's the same after post-Black Panther. Well, listen, that'll be your next iteration. You'll be in Africa doing all this. Hey, new Wakanda, baby. New Wakanda. Hey, Kamal, so you've been detached from your home base where Black Gotham lives day to day down at the South Street Seaport. How's that detachment been? And how have you been dealing with not really being in the space where you've done so much creating physically, you know, over the past couple of months? Well, I miss bumping into people. I miss people stopping by the studio and I miss the like random convergence that turns into like cash flow <laughs> where somebody like walks by the studio, knocks on a glass, comes inside, asks a couple questions, realize that they've heard about Black Gotham, but didn't realize that I'm somebody that they knew or knew of. And then before they leave, they give a card. I pass it off to somebody on my team. A few emails go around next day. They're booking a tour. So I think that part of the creativity that I miss the most is not even necessarily working on a canvas or working on backdrop or working on photography or video or even writing. Part of the creativity that I miss is just being on my feet and having those big windows and prime real estate, three blocks from Wall Street, talking to people who I don't know. 
but they walk in and they find out what Black Gotham Experience is about. They find out what Kamau Studios is. And that convergence is a big part of my creativity. And it also feeds my creation. So being at home, being here in Brooklyn and not having that same level of interaction, I just began to like make my adjustments and focus more on research and writing and teaching. And so it's always, <laughs> I remember like the money I made from teaching university as a visiting fellow, which is kind of like, oh yeah, that's cute. You know what I mean? Sure. That's cute. Right. But then it's like your real insurance is having multiple streams of income because you never quite know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. And so now that I, you know, getting money from teaching, it's like, well, I'm glad that's there because other things are like gone. Phase four is for arts and culture. So I would say part of why I had a rough Friday is because I gave birth to the first virtual iteration of an offering from Black Gotham Experience on Monday morning. It was due the previous Monday, but I kept on pushing back the deadlines because my productivity at home is just something I really had to just go through the motions to get into my body because I'm used to being in a separate space working. I'm used to having like these 10 foot tables that are like five feet off the ground and I can just like work on them and go grab an espresso, grab a drink, go grab some fresh air, go see the river. And now I'm kind of like in an apartment where I got my cocktails and my food and the motivation was there, but the cycle is different. Once the sun goes down, I know me and my lady got to like have time to like break bread and watch some anime. It's hard to say, you know, what? I know we have time together, but I need you to like just have a night by yourself while I work on a computer because that social mental health piece is critical. So it wasn't until Monday that I got it done and the response has been really positive. And that's part of how my week got off to a good start. So I think the thing I miss the most is just people. But like today I made my first public appearance since February 29th on an international program that came out of Amsterdam. And right behind that, I taught a high school class that saw the 20 minute video that I mentioned I created. And so it felt like, all right, like life after death in many ways. It's like, this is, I can still create, I can still connect with people and I can still meet strangers. It might be through a screen, but I didn't even do like the Zoom outfit where I just got on like, you know, right. <laughs> Speedos, right. tuxedo on top. I actually had on pants today. There it is. And so- I'm over here feeling like not quite the same, but I felt like the connection that I had with people felt very real and it was international and I really miss, really, really miss traveling. So being able to like be in touch with my people over in Amsterdam plus New York and talking to different people has been a positive part of like my week. And so, yeah, I got back a lot of what I was missing this week. Or yeah, that productivity thing in a state like this where you've got different levels of responsibility or freedom, you know, balancing that and figuring out ways to stay on top of our lives, stay on top of our health, stay on top of our passions and stay connected to our people. It's a challenge. It's a challenge, but I think the values that will come out of this, some of the self-reliance that ultimately will kind of be fine-tuned coming out of this will also be interesting to see. And, and I'll be curious to see as we move towards some sense of normalcy over the next couple of months, how that affects people's psyches and how they kind of reapproach work, how I reapproach work and team and 
team building, but I'm really, really curious, um, you know, especially for my son, for the H, how he re-socializes and we starts to reconnect with like friends other than the ones that he's playing hours and hours and hours and hours of Fortnite with. <laughs> I still haven't played that. I don't even know what it, I think I saw a Fortnite concert with Travis Scott and I get what it is, but I'm just old, man. Fuck it. Don't even try, bro. Don't even try. Don't even worry about it. But just from a straight up marketing, branding, and experiential standpoint, that Travis Scott show is 10 minutes long. You should watch it. Yeah, it was dope. What Travis Scott show? So Travis Scott partnered with Fortnite. They did a concert in the game. So it's a massive multiplayer online game hundreds of thousands of millions of people basically in one server at the same time in a built up world. And they dropped the Travis Scott performance in there. It's not the first one. I think the first one was a marshmallow concert. Yeah. The DJ. And he did a performance. The DJ. Yeah. Yeah. He's pretty dope live, by the way. Yeah. They have fun. Right. And so they found these artists that they can take into the digital world and have these expressions of togetherness through this massive multiplayer online game, which is really about like shooting and destroying each other. Like it's a last man or last duo or last squad standing platform, which for us, you know, when we were young, we would just play the game. But now they're bringing entertainment into it in a way and a bit of socialization into it in a way that I think we always had when we would play Madden or whatever in the dorm rooms or at home with our homies, with our friends. They've found a way to kind of do that same level of entertainment and bring that same level of connectivity and joy into that online world. And the way they did this Travis Scott concert, it was all ages of people who are interested in like pop culture, music, whatever, could have enjoyed it, whether you liked the game or not. It was amazing. Was it like an avatar of him? It was an avatar of him. 12 million people tuned in at the same time. And then I think, you know, probably 50 million views after that. Yeah, it was like what, four or five different Travis Scott avatars. Yeah. I checked out the whole 10 minutes. It was like kind of have to being a guy working in experiential. I guess I'm back on the marketing side of the company I'm at now. So yeah, I just figured, why not try it out and see what's up? It was intriguing, man. I guess I'll find it on the tube. Just Travis Scott Fortnite, you'll get after it. It's definitely worth seeing because, again, as we think about experience and rethink togetherness and adapt to what the world has given us right now, the innovations that are happening and the way that people, companies, individuals are adapting is really, really fascinating. I'm enjoying it to some degree. It's challenging in other ways on like an individual personal level, but at the same time, it's forcing connections like the ones that we're having right now to be much more meaningful. And I'm looking forward to how that meaning translates into the reconnection that happens over the coming months. I guess there won't be a watch the throne too in this era <laughs> based off <Right>. that. <laughs> it ain't happening, bro. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Every episode, we dive into a topic on fatherhood and parenthood that we think important to explore more deeply. It may be the result of a life event, a subject that we've all wanted to discuss, or something happening in society and culture affecting us as parents. All right, y'all. So 
Can I kick it about the hopes and fears that we have for our sons? Yeah, go on then. You know, this week, I don't even say this week. Yesterday morning, I woke up early, 5.30, probably 6 o'clock. And I'm trying to get out of the habit of grabbing my phone right away. Trying to get out of the habit of letting that be the lead into my day. But on this particular occasion, you know, I woke up grab my phone to check the time. For some reason, you know, went right to Instagram and literally the first thing that came up was a video with no context, but it was censored. So I knew it was sensitive material. It was from a feed where there's a lot of issues around black health in this country. And so I clicked it and I watched a young man running down the street and immediately my stomach dropped because it was a black man. It was a kid, looked like, running down rural street. And then a brutal scene, a brutal lynching. It was a devastating visual. There will not be a morning again where I pick up my phone and like let that be the first thing that happens to me. Because while we're in this unfortunate state, There's a host of really terrible things happening in many, many communities, but a lot that are happening in our community, in the Black community. But this one in particular just shook me, and I believe it shook others in a way that was unexpected, was jarring, was frightening. You know, I spent a day filled with anger watching young brother Ahmad just be shot down brutally with shotguns in the middle of a Georgia street. And naturally, my thoughts went to our safety generally in the world. The fact that I was about to go for a run, which is what I like to do you know, in the mornings when I can and when I'm feeling good to start the day. And I just had to sit in a meditative, reflective anger, but also sit in the fear that I have for my little man who isn't really even identifying yet with race and identity. He's not fully connected with that yet and almost bristles at it. You know, you have this internal debate because it's a moment, right? It's an important moment. Do I share it with him? Is he old enough to understand what this is? Yeah. Is he old enough to understand what this is? Is he old enough to digest it? But at the same time, I also don't want him worried about me going out on a run and being afraid for whether I'm coming back or not, because he's young and he's sensitive and he's impressionable and he'll have a million questions, even though he's maturing. You know, there's a lot to that. And it just, it shook me, man. And I still haven't really come out of the anger that I'm feeling around it, the anger that I have for the reporting around it, but it opened up this broader dialogue, this broader inner dialogue about those hopes and fears that we have, you know, for our children. And I'm curious for you two, what it brought up for you in that regard, because, you know, again, at different stages in life and in relationships and with our sons. So it all hits in different ways and different impacts. And I'm really curious. And I I was immediately curious about how you guys were digesting that and ultimately how it affects the way that you kind of view the world around yourselves and also around your sons. Well, I mean, oddly enough, a friend of mine 
who's from Brunswick, Georgia, guy, Madeline with Earl Ferg. He's one of my other partners, Pepper. And I've been knowing this guy now for probably since 2006. Yeah, he's from that area. He don't really know Brother Ahmad. That, he don't know him at all, but he know people that know him, right? And he hit me to the story like weeks ago. And he was wanting to know if I could do like one of my suspicious prison pieces for it. And I like, yeah, I checked it out. So yeah, I was going to get around to doing it. And it's weird because I really don't like doing those pieces, but I do them just because. And uh, it just kind of slipped my mind. And it wasn't until Spike hit me up like the day I guess the video dropped. And he asked me how I seen the video. I said, well, purposely, I did not want to watch the video. I read the story and um, finally checked out the video. And it was just weird because I don't know if my first reaction was anger. It's almost like this particular type of, I guess, interactions with white supremacists. It's become hypernormalized. Like it's almost a reflection. It's almost like a, a exact mirror of what happened to Trayvon, but in the form of a slave hunting. Like they literally hunted that guy down like he was a fox in the fucking woods and basically shot him. Right. So it's just, man, one of those things where just a constant reminder that you live in a state called the United States that was never really built for us as black yeah, men. Absolutely. Definitely as black people, but definitely as a black man, you're always going to be hunted. And I know that Garvey now is like you know, it's 18 months, but. I know at some point I'm going to have to have a talk with him long before he turned a teenager because my dad had that same talk with me before I was even 10, right? Because, hey, I'm from Georgia. And the reality of it is even living in a place like Atlanta, which is predominantly black, half of the city was still white. And you in a, a white state in the South and the imminent danger is always present. And my dad and my mom had three boys and two daughters. And the reality of it is, Anything can jump off, even in a predominantly black city like Atlanta. So, yeah, it was just the same type of, I guess, upbringing or informative kind of discussions I got from my parents. I kind of have to pass that on to Garvey. And, yeah, I don't think I'm going to like the fact that I got to tell him that the world is really fucked up, even though we post Obama president and which he don't know nothing about. But we still live in that world. Even in 2020, we still in a world of post-COVID. Zoom calls, iPhones and driving cars and all that crazy scientific stuff that's now been manifested from science fiction books. The old ugly head of racism still permeates and it's still there. So that's for me, man, like the hopes and fears. I would hope that the world change, but I'm a natural cynic. And unfortunately, I just go by historic reference. I will hope that it change. I fear that it just never will. My fear is that when he's a father, he'll want the same thing for his children. And I think that too many generations going back, everybody wants the same thing, not to see your child ganked off of this earth as some type of sport. And everybody's fear is that it could happen. And it's like that always sets us in a whole different universe of psychic energy where we're not spending all of our emotional investment in our prayers into them being X, Y, and Z. We're like, you know what, really? Just if you could like not get murdered, that'd be dope. You know what I mean? So when I came across Ahmad Arbery, like the next day, I was like, damn, this is me, you know, going back to always having a historical lens, February 26, 2012, Trayvon Martin. This man was murdered February 23rd, 2020. And what's also similar 
is these jokers are at home right now. Well, I think they got charged. They got charged. They finally got charged. Was that today? That was today. They okay. charged those two guys. Right. Last okay. Couple hours. So, yeah. so charged. Does that mean that they're where at home? Because being charged would mean that you are anywhere in particular. You could get charged. Yeah, just in the past couple hours. Okay. So from February 23rd all the way to, what is it, May 7th, these jokers have been eating, fucking, drinking, and laughing. Just completely probably watched Fortnite and saw Travis Scott and loved it. They've been living their normal life, probably watching the last day. No second thoughts. No second thought about anything. No fears. Since February 23rd, spent an entire month plus just living a best life. Mm -hmm. Just like George, who yeah. murdered Trayvon. And these are not police. So One is a former police. The point is, they're not even cops doing their job. They're not off-duty. Yeah, they're vigilantes. Yeah. But like, former police, not a police, means that they're not wearing a badge driving around like right. the people who choked Eric Gardner and shot Mike Brown. These right. are people who are more or less citizens who chose that hunting black men was completely their providence as what they identify as white men. Yeah. That's what struck me because, you know, AD, you know, similarly, you learning about the case a couple of weeks ago, I learned about the case watching that video. Mm. And in the moment, I'm like, did this happen yesterday? Right. Yeah. But then when you, Stress that out to your point, Kamau, that this is something that happened in February. Pre-lockdown. And this video is the only reason why these men will face any charges at all. This video doesn't come out. These guys, to your point, eat, drink, fuck, be merry without any other concern in the world. And that's devastating, right? The soullessness of that act the fact that there was also the audacity to record the act and for that to just sit somewhere on a cloud with no investigation, no conversation, lies, no real need to cover up, mm -hmm. right? No conspiracy, no backdoor, oh, sure, you know what I mean? Just yeah. this is life. This is Thursday. Yeah. Sets a horrible precedent for this country. That's a horrible precedent for the powder keg that that can create. And that's the thing that struck me most in relation to, you know, our discussion is there was a mother and father somewhere with a story that had been told about their child that they had no control over that they had to sit with as a verdict for months. And then they probably learned on the internet yeah. how their child was brutally taken away from them. All of that, taking all of that in in the morning, man, oh man. After, you know, like I said, the, you know, the weeks that we've had and the things that we've all been experiencing and the things I've been, you know, experiencing individually and some of the battles I've been even having with the H and, and you know, homework and all these things, like the trivialness of some of that just set in, in a really rough way and, and just brought up this topic, man. And I wanted to hear how you guys kind of digested that and what it meant to you to kind of digest this narrative, you know, in real time. Yeah. It just showed that America has more hate and the hate is actually more powerful than a pandemic. 
think about how we're facing the full front of a pandemic and we're deciding, okay, well, what's the life worth? We got to get the economy cracking. So which state chooses to go first and open up, even though they're not got their full boot on top of the virus? Which state decides they want to go first and open up? Georgia. So Georgia is the first state that wants to open up. They opened up for two Fridays ago. So Georgia opens up first, right? Mm -hmm. And while Georgia opens up first and all the conversation about Georgia is about them opening up before other states and before even the president thinks that they're ready to. And the whole discussion about why there can't be charges placed on these two murderers is because, oh, you know, our courts ain't open. It's like, bruh, y'all opened up before any other state in the country and y'all just don't have the time to go and arrest two murderers at home playing Fortnite. Them dudes, they didn't even flee the country. They could have fled the country with cheap plane tickets. And they said, fuck it, we're not even going to do that. Well, what better country to be in if you murder a black man than America? Where you going to go to? You're going to get more justice somewhere else. Yeah. And I don't mean that hyperbolically. I mean that in a very literal way. The, yeah, the, right. the best court system from the face is the one where they are. So mm -hmm. why run when they're already in the best place they can be? And I will say one thing, um, and this is not a suggestion. This is just me sharing for anybody out there who mm -hmm. is navigating this. The last murder I watched was Eric Gardner. And this just goes back to the topic of the entire podcast. Because my son was wrongfully arrested at the age of 14. He was 14 for like three days and was arrested. And it's a different conversation, but I have been unable to watch black men being, I can't. The chill factor is more than my body can maintain. I cannot maintain the angst and the chills when I see a poorly produced video of a black man. And you know the aesthetic. When you see a black man, you really can't see their face. You see it kind of grainy. It's kind of shaky. It's like, oh, this is going to be a murder. I haven't seen Scott Walker. I haven't seen. I just cannot 100%. watch them. And yeah, so snuff films. Those are snuff films. Mm -hmm. I just don't watch them. And that's just the way I take care of myself. So it's not a suggestion to you, brothers, but for anybody who's listening and navigating, this is one of those sneaky parts of oppression that I feel is painfully, masterfully done. It's a very powerful way of oppression. Back to the historical frame, it used to be performance to watch us get lynched. And part of the reason for that is because it was to instill fear, to take the murder of Black bodies and to make that to be something that becomes, as you stated, Adrian, hyper-normalized. It's also something that puts fear in others. And then eventually, our need to see it to get justice is a complete catch-22 mindfuck because we have to abuse ourselves in order to seek justice. It shouldn't take this footage and it shouldn't take everybody having to see it for justice to be done, but we have to basically put our souls through torture in order for a family to get what's not really even justice because no matter what happens to these particular people who killed them, it's still not justice, but some sense of closure. Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm just looking at the historical context of America. I don't know if it can ever change. And I'm just setting my son up and people and kids like him 
to start seeing the world as their home because I don't know. Staying here may be a detriment to his life. That's the real. So I don't know, man. I may have to just raise my son to be a world citizen because, yeah, man, if you're looking for the perpetrator to actually change, perpetrators almost never change themselves. It has to take some external force to change such a perpetrator. And I have yet to see that happen with any type of imperial country unless they go through something like this. So maybe this is the real change and the hope that we really want, right? Like something like this is going to change America because it financially has to change. The only time America changes because of the money. It doesn't change because it's moral ethics. And maybe that now has to be rethought because the one thing that is going to kill America is his hate. It's hate for poor people. It's hate for people of color. It's hate for women. The sheer hate that has powered this country is the one thing that's going to probably take it right out. You can see it right now through COVID-19. The mere fact that this country hate the idea of affordable health care has killed this country economy because the mere fact that they can't and they decided to not make health care the number one thing to deal with in this country. If everybody's sick, nobody can go to work. Supply chains messed up. I mean, you even got the cops not going to work here in NYC, right? So I feel like the hate that hate bread is, yeah, I think hate is going to be the thing that really take this country out, man. If it don't change, then we'll see. Yeah. Those fears and hopes are real, man. And this is why the barbershop and institutions like that are so important for these kind of connections and this kind of dialogue. This was something I definitely wanted to talk with you guys about. And I, like I said, I hope that for my little man, he has these kind of bonds that allow him to, you know, have these kind of open dialogues and open exchanges about the world and its joys and its monsters so that he can walk with, you know, a little bit of confidence and the same confidence that I do that I, you know, have you two and many more to lean on when I need it. All good. Amen. Amen. No doubt. Well, thank you again. We will definitely talk more about subjects like this, but other uplifting topics, other tough topics, other thought-provoking topics as we dive further into the stages. But that's our episode for this week. And we'll see you on the next one. The Stages is a production of Sauce Kitchen Studios, produced and edited by Ali Ojbe, and featuring the track Going Home by Classic Beats. That's Beats with a Z. You can find Going Home on his album Spaces in Noir, and you can find that on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get dope-ass music. <laughs>